morning crypto. Good morning, Warriors. Hello and welcome back to another episode of your favorite crypto news channel, Good Morning Crypto, where we bring you the most relevant and impactful crypto-related topics from a top crypto research team in the world. I'm your host, Abs, joined by one member of our 3T family this morning. We got the Italian stallion, Mr. Johnny Crypto, and a brilliant young mind in the space, a man known for his development on both the XRP and XDC blockchains, as well as an honorary member of our 3T team. Quincy Jones is in the building, ladies and gentlemen, so he'll be joining us later in the episode. I'm very excited for today's show. Today on Good Morning Crypto, we'll be discussing how how JP Morgan was secretly communicating with the SEC before suing Ripple Labs. As a video out of the BIS states a digital SDR could be the solution for our current banking crisis. Cardano has now become compatible with Ethereum smart contracts as Citigroup is predicting an explosion in tokenization, stating that this market could do an ADX in the next eight years. And as the value of the US dollar is collapsing before our eyes, new digital ecosystems are forming. Our special guest is going to break down the the impact of decentralized applications, showing our community how certain tokens were built to change the world. Our show is available on your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Music. And for those of you listening via podcast, our show is live on YouTube Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. Eastern at the 3T Warrior Academy channel. So it's going to be some quick introductions today, guys. Johnny Crypto, we already got 227 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And while all you guys are here, I'm going to remind you right now, Quincy is going to be joining us in about seven minutes. He's going to be jumping live on the show. We're going to get right into that interview. But Johnny, how you feeling, my friend? And thanks for being here. Well, folks, uh, Abs, I'm feeling great. Let me just start off like I always do. Good morning to all the Warrior Maniacs out there. We love you and appreciate you guys. Also super excited. UConn Huskies won last night, so that was pretty cool too as well, Abs. So anybody who's an NCAA fan, yeah, that was pretty awesome. But uh, yeah, it is exciting today. We've got we've got Quincy. I wasn't able to join the last time he was here. I was on a business trip. So I am looking forward to meet him and having a conversation. It sounds like we got another packed lineup of good stuff out there to talk about. So uh, happy to dive into it. Can't wait to get started, my man. We're going to dive into the dicey topics before Quincy gets on air. That way we don't put him in a tough spot, guys. But before we do that, we're going to start this show off the same way we always do by showing you our Good Morning Crypto Twitter account. That's at 3TGM Crypto on Twitter. We're about seven followers away from 3,500. Go smash that follow button. We love talking to you. The Bitcoin Fear and Greed Index is in greed this morning, sitting at a 62 with a little bit of price action, bullish price action in the market today. Dogecoin is up about 25%. We're going to talk about this later in the episode. XDC minus three and XRP minus 2% on the day. When we check out the total coin market cap, we are sitting at 1.18 trillion in total market cap this morning. Bitcoin is 46% dominance. Ethereum is about 18%. We've got Bitcoin sitting at 28,000. Ethereum, 18,500. Sorry, (laughs) 1,850. XRP is 49 cents. Cardano's 39 cents. Polkadot, $6.40. Stellar is 10. And let's scroll down to Quant Network, sitting at 123 this morning. And Johnny Crypto, we've got a bunch of news prepared for our listeners today, but I want to dive right into our topics because we got to get this in before Quincy hops on air. So the Ripple lawsuit could have been influenced by the JP Morgan's relationship with the SEC and new evidence is coming out as we speak in regards to the relationship between JP Morgan and the SEC. A a new file revealed a Freedom of Information Act request in the early August of 2022 regarding communications between the SEC and banking giant JP Morgan, specifically their discussions regarding Ripple Labs and the currency XRP. In a new update, Ashley Prosper shared that the request continues to be delayed 
Prosper is seeking disclosure on any communications between JP Morgan and Ripple, specifically in regards to XRP. Apparently, there's a large number of records that require confidential treatment, she said. Based on our initial review of records, which involves the records of the confidential treatment was requested at the time of this submission. Due to this, this is going to add about 60 days to the review time. And before we get into the details about what these documents may say, Johnny Crypto, I'd love to get your opinion. Why do you believe JP Morgan and the SEC are collaborating to not release these documents right now? Hmm, that's a great question. I have no idea. Oh, <laughs> uh, actually, though, so Abs, that's really, really great investigative work uncovering that. That's a very, very interesting because the, the question here now is we all know that JP Morgan has kind of been in bed with ETH. We know that ETH has gotten a free pass. You know, start adding the dots up, put some glue in between, glue them some bitches together, and you can start to see the puzzle coming together here. So obviously there were backdoor conversations. And now, someday, right now, Abs, we're talking about the Hinman emails. It won't be that long that we might be talking about the JPM emails. Absolutely, Johnny Crypto. And here's a couple more details I want to reveal for our listeners. Not only is it a classic example of show me the chart, I'll tell you the news. This is something that we've been talking about for quite a while. The relationship between big banks and the SEC is something that needs to be on the forefront when it comes to crypto investors. Gary Gensler's main objective right now, and we painted this picture on Friday, Elizabeth Warren and Gary Gensler are collaborating to take crypto and bring it into traditional finance, whether that's JP Morgan, Bank of America, Chase Bank, HSBC. There's a common saying in traditional finance, they call it the big six. And the big six banks in America, they basically control all of finance. So what did they do? They went to the president of the United States, the man who they fund these campaigns, and they said, go take crypto, bring it into traditional finance, and let us profit off of this innovation, because now we understand this is inevitable, and this is going to be a success. But what did JP Morgan specifically say to the SEC? We're going to dive into that right here. So the communications between the SEC and JP Morgan directly led to a December 2020 lawsuit against Ripple Labs. It was prompted by an article blog called Blue Sky Blog. And that discussed how the CEO's donations related to SEC enforcement. Specifically in this article, they were talking about how Jamie Dimon and his political donations related to the enforcement actions brought upon by the SEC. The information to be released without charge so the public can better understand how private companies are influencing these government agencies. Now, what's important to know about this article in particular is they're doing everything they can to not release these emails. And specifically, we will not see these documents until the Ripple versus SEC case is over. She was very clear about the um, the Empower Overment, the Empower Oversights Committee role in this as well, sitting that Jay Clayton, William Hinman, and Mark Berger could all be facing possible conflicts of interest due to some of these documents. So Johnny Crypto, we already got 343 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And Quincy Jones is going to be joining the show later in the episode. We'll dive into decentralized applications and much more. But while we're on these Ripple topics, Johnny, what do you anticipate from this JP Morgan relationship? Let's say there is a resolution in the Ripple lawsuit. Could this be something that comes after the fact? Could we see JP Morgan dealing with the consequences of the relationship they had with the SEC? I don't think so. No, I mean, it's one of those things where, um, my personal opinion, I, I don't think, I don't think so. Johnny, my energy's at a 10. I kick it to you. It's like a two. Just <laughs> no, Well, I mean, I just thought that question. I mean, it's just, I don't think, yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think anything's going to happen on that one. But, you know, should something happen? Yeah. Should that get flushed out? Yeah. Is it? No, I don't think so. 
I don't think anything's going to happen on that one. But uh, Feel free to elaborate, bro, because it's just me and you here. I don't want to talk the whole time. What do you actually think of this document? I mean, you're acting very non – it's very nonchalant. This is humongous. Not only is J.P. Morgan confirmed, there's no conspiracy here. They were communicating with the SEC, and there's dozens of documents that are yet to be released. But yet I feel like you are you don't care. Why is that? Well, because, you know, these kind of these, – these kind of – you know, this is where experience comes in. You see the gray over here, the whiz. You know, these kind of documents are ones where you get really excited – you hope something's going to happen. And then what happens? Nothing happens. And that's what's going to happen on this one, most likely, in my opinion, is while I agree with you, entirely significant news, this should be flushed out, should be brought out to attention. And as I said earlier in the show, I hope that after we were talking about the Hinman emails, we start hearing rumblings about the JP Morgan emails. But I'm not so sure that's going to happen. And I'm not going to sit here and get excited about it until I start hearing you know, the SEC or a bunch of news medias or congressmen calling it out. I just don't think I don't think you're going to see much of it. But it is disturbing that, you know, the, the top sentence there literally said that these conversations led to the lawsuit, which actually, to be honest with you, we've all kind of known or thought that there was a disconnect between Ripple and J.P. Morgan because we know they're not working together. We know they're not utilizing their technology. Um, in fact, this only confirms, in my opinion, that they fear or, or see them as a threat to their technology. And that's probably why we're, we're sitting here today with the lawsuit. And now we just confirmed that that's the reason why we, are, we do have the lawsuit. It and I, and in a lot of ways, I do agree with you, Johnny. And there's more details in this article that kind of outline that. In August of 2021, the government watchdog group oversight, the Empowerment Oversight Committee, filed an extensive FOIA request for internal access to SEC documents involving Jay Clayton, William Hinman, and several other SEC officials. The reason they were looking for access to this document is the possible conflict of interest that could have taken place during their tenure. Now, we know William Hinman was paid by Simpson and Thatcher upwards of 10, sorry, in totality, I believe it was around $7 million while he was at the SEC to promote the Ethereum Alliance. And, and coincidentally or not, right after he worked at the SEC, he retired and went to Simpson and Thatcher. So, on one hand, we have the Hinman emails, which are clearly going to reveal some oversight when it comes to how people view Ethereum. But on the other hand, we have JP Morgan and these documents that could reveal that traditional finance is not only doing the what they can to shut down this, this new innovation, they're actually working with innovators in a coordinated effort to shut it down, Johnny. And that's why I think it's so important. If there is clear evidence of companies like JP Morgan and Bank of America working with Gary Gensler and SEC officials to shut down companies like Ripple, I don't know if it's criminal, but in my eyes, it really is. And you said you don't think anybody will deal with the consequences. I'm hoping that we do someday. So any thoughts on those statements there, Johnny? Well, it's not that I don't think it. I would love it, but I don't think I, yeah, we'll have to see if it happens. And that, you talk about my energy level. My energy level is always through the roof. It's just that this one is one of those articles where I don't think anything's going to happen. But if it does, yeah, then you'll see my energy levels much, much higher. But I, I got to control myself and keep my energy levels at bail as I get myself super excited. But this is just one of those things where it is significant. Fine. Don't get me wrong. Abs. It's, it's tremendous. That's why I said amazing work. But in terms of will anything happen, that's what we need to wait and see. And that's what I'm wondering is what exactly will happen. How significant will it be? We're going to find out shortly. Absolutely, Johnny Crypto. And somebody who seems to agree with you is Elon Musk as he makes some bold statements about the SEC here. I'm going to play this short clip that speaks for itself and go back to you. Here we go. I want to be clear. I do not respect the SEC. I do not respect them. But but you're abiding by the settlement, aren't you? Because I respect the justice system. 
Look at you. No, I, 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 want to, I want to be clear. I do not respect the SEC. I do not respect them. But, but you're abiding by the settlement, aren't you? Because I respect the justice system. That's going to be Brad Garlinghouse in, sorry guys. That is going to be Brad Garlinghouse in spring of 2024. Not only is he going to say, I do not respect the SEC, but I respect the justice system. And that's why we're complying with the settlement. But guys, we got 392 live listeners joining us. Show us some love, smash that like button. And before Quincy gets here, there's a couple of revealing documents or videos that I'd like to play for our listeners. In this next one, it's in regards to the Ethereum ICO that took place in 2014 and stating because they worked with SEC officials, they got nothing to worry about. But that was my contribution was a lot of the structure, the initial funding, uh, the planning to make sure that what we did wouldn't have any consequences down the road because if it, we'd gone the full-on developer way they wanted to do things, we would have done the crowd sale right at the beginning and we probably wouldn't be, uh, um, it wouldn't be a, a situation where Ethereum would be where it is right now. You maybe would, would have ended up more of a ripple situation or something else. So we had to do things properly and we offered a lot of the guidance to make sure that it got done right initially. Few key details stick out to me here. Not only was Ripple working with the SEC for an extended period of time before they were sued, they actually met with Jay Clayton and William Hinman and many of these officials, I believe it was a half dozen times in the SEC's office. So it's interesting to hear an Ethereum founder say, if we had followed Ripple, what Ripple had done, we'd be sitting here sued. I completely disagree, but Johnny, I'd love to give you the floor. What does it mean to you, my friend? Uh, mute button, Roto. It goes back to the old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And obviously, ETH had the right relationships and Ripple had the wrong relationships at the end of the day. I mean, you, you just uncovered it right there, right? So at the end of the day, I guess we, uh, you know, and it looks like Gary doesn't respect Elon either. I, I actually I actually kind of respect Elon that he came out abs and literally said, I don't respect them. I'll follow them. You know why he has to? Because, you know, they'll come after him again and he's got businesses. So he's doing the right thing. Got to abide by the laws. We should all do that. But I do, you know, kudos to him, man, for coming out and having the balls to say that even after they came and slapped him with a major lawsuit and he went through it and fought them and got through it. And we all know he came out on the other side as one of the richest men in the world. So now, will Brad do that and Ripple? Well, we'll have to wait and see if that's where we're headed with that whole thing. But it, it is very interesting to hear them say that, that ETH could have been in the same situation uh, as Ripple is. We're definitely seeing a move away from the U.S. dollar globally, but to see global leaders like the World Economic Forum putting it out here, this is very concerning. And guys, we got 414 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. Quincy Jones will be joining us any minute, and I'm super excited for that interview. But Johnny Crypto, a new document that came out this month from the World Economic Forum said the end of the U.S. dollar-led world is now upon us. We are leaving behind a U.S. dollar-led unipopular world with U.S. dollar at the center entering a multipolar deglobalization world where the dollar may not hold much influence. While this process will be gradual, it carries profound economic, financial, and geopolitical implications. And of course, they're rolling out a central bank digital currency at the same time. So Johnny, what does it mean to you that the World Economic Forum is telling us we're, not only are we separating from the dollar, we're going into a multi-basket world where not one currency is going to have control? Well, it means exactly what we've been saying on this show for the longest time is you need to be prepared for this. You need to diversify. If all your savings, and I am not a financial advisor at all, Abs, and none of us are here on this show, so you should not be you know, literally going by strictly just us. But man, 
anybody who's sitting at home who's either not paying attention or who is just all in cash or in the US dollar, I should say, and in banks on top of it all, man, you're in a, you're in a lot of trouble. Uh, yes, guys, Quincy is coming. He'll be here any minute. So uh, just so you know, I, I see people asking in the chat. He's on his way. He was in a tied up in a work meeting. So he'll be here shortly. But anyway, just to get back to the article abs, significantly huge, right? We have been saying it on this show. Coach has been saying it. The whole world, there's clues everywhere that the dollar is on its way out. Ray, Ray Dalio. Guys, if you haven't watched that Ray Dalio video, abs, I don't know if we have it blow or not. But if you haven't watched that Ray Dalio video, yeah, this is one of the actual graphics or similar graphics from it. You need to go watch that. It's the, literally the, probably the most important 40 minutes of your life where you can kind of see how these things transition over. And, um, you know, you need to protect yourself because that chart is exactly right. The U.S. is on its way down. The handing of the baton to another currency is coming, abs. And if you aren't diversifying into other assets, real assets that are in your physical hand right here, put them right here, like gold, silver. Uh, real estate, you know, things that you can, uh, cans of tuna, things like that, that, that value that you can hold on to seeds, you know, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. So I just hope people are paying attention. I know our worry maniacs in this chat. I'm not worried about these guys here. All you guys in the chat, I know you guys are doing your homework and you're all well aware of what's happening out there. Um, but if you're not, another thing you could do is come to the freedom conference. I don't I think we do have the link below. Uh, in April of this month. So literally in uh, 11 days, in 11 days, abs, people can come to the Freedom Conference, meet a bunch of other people, like-minded individuals, share ideas, ask questions. We get, you know, hug hug some of us if you want. We're all going to be there. We've got great content for folks as well to kind of help them understand what's coming and how to prepare and more importantly, how to... Um, protect your generational, how to create generational wealth and protect your assets. So all these things are, are the kinds of things that you're going to be able to gain uh, from having, you know, coming to a freedom conference like this and wrapping your head around what's going on in the world in the bigger picture. Johnny Crypto, on a separate note, in a, in a coordinated effort to bring traditional finance into crypto, Crypto Airy, one of our friends, painted a clear picture of what's taking place. Crypto companies have scrambled to establish new banking relationships and have received a positive recipient from Cross River Bank, Fifth Third, and Customers Bank. Meanwhile, J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of New York Mellon still do business with crypto clients. Imagine that. Source is the Wall Street Journal. But Johnny Crypto, the most important part of that article is what we've been outlining from the beginning of the show. J.P. Morgan is coming into this market. Bank of America is coming into this market. HSBC is coming into this market. And I think it's a great time to actually shift into one of our articles where Citibank, one of the largest banking institutions on the planet, said that they're predicting $4 trillion in tokenized assets over the next eight years. But guys, we got 444 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And Johnny Crypto just referenced it down below. If you're looking to come to the Freedom Conference, April 14th and 15th in Mesa, Arizona, that's where we're going to be. But Johnny, I'd love to get into the details of this article. As U.S. banking giant Citigroup believes that blockchain and crypto assets are likely destined for mass adoption and hyper growth, a.k.a. big money for crypto investors. A new report titled Money Tokens and Games called Blockchain's Next Billion Users and Trillions in Value. City analysts say that since blockchain is more complex than other widely adopted technologies, its trajectory for mass adoption has been slightly slower. The potential for the tokenization via blockchain has been talked about as a transformative technology for the past few years, but we're not quite to the point of mass adoption, said Citibank. This is because it doesn't have a tangible sense of the asset. Companies like ChatGPT and the metaverse 
allow customers to actually plug into their infrastructure, while crypto is a little bit different of a process. Citibank says that mass adoption process of blockchain is likely going to be sparked by the implementation of central bank digital currencies, as well as the rise of blockchain-based gaming projects and social media payments. We're going to play a video later in the episode talking about how Elon Musk is building Twitter into a payment system, and this could be one of the big, biggest factors towards mass adoption. The bank is also predicting that it expects an 80x growth in tokenization of real-world assets during the next eight years, stating that an 80x in the private markets could reach up to $4 trillion in tokenized assets by the year 2030. And Johnny Crypto, Ooh. this is music to my ears because we can draw some connections to who they're going to be tokenizing on, but I think it's no coincidence at all. I'm going to say this right now. XRP, XDC, Algorand, XLM. These are many of the tokens that we talk about every day on our channel. HBAR as well, Ethereum as well, Polkadot and Polygon as well. These are many of the currencies that we love to highlight and many of the currencies that are in the best place to take advantage of this growth. So before I run out of breath here, Johnny, what's it mean to you, my friend? Yeah, definitely take a deep breath there. I'll take over and do some talking here. Uh, so basically, Abs, there's a lot to unpack there. But if you looked at it, if you really dive in deep, you pull out your mic your your uh, your sleuth uh, magnifying glass. What you'll see there is that they talked about the slowing of the releasing of the technology in the U.S., but you see it happening in the rest of the world, right? But in favor for what? They said it. It's right there in favor of CBDC, and I think that's why you're seeing the slowing of the growth of crypto. Is I think they don't want crypto to be so big and get adopted so quickly that then it's hard to transition over. To CBDCs. So if you keep crypto down, it's a much easier transition to CBDCs. You understand? That's number one. Number two, then I think once the CBDC is established, then they won't care. Then they'll let crypto do whatever it's going to do. They'll let it grow because you know, they already have their thing. And then number two, what's very important is two other areas they pointed out. Social media payments. So think about, so if you're thinking about what do I invest in, you think, okay, well, you just heard one, social media credits or payment systems so you know we know that, that they're pushing doge and things like that and maybe other types of you know some other systems that could be out there that could do that blockchain and then the other thing that you heard which is big and we've been saying it all the time and it's one of my favorite categories in this space is gaming gaming metaverse that kind of thing is coming any kind of coins in those areas or technology in those areas also make great sense to invest in because that technology just matches up well with those segments. So, Isn't uh, it interesting, Johnny Crypto, that they talk about the U.S. has never stated that they're definitely launching a CBDC, but the people in the banks who control this country always state CBDCs are going to be the catalyst for mass adoption. And so if we, have any, if we haven't even decided that CBDCs are going to be here, how can you say that $5 trillion in assets are going to be in central bank digital currencies in only eight years? Expose the game, my friend. Because now you know who run. Now you know who really calls the shots. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I don't have to say more than that. I mean, people can't figure it out. They gotta get, you know, they need to go back and watch it again. Well, let's but say somebody was just getting into this market today, and we'll, let's just kill a little time while we talk about this. One of the things that people don't understand is the difference between a CBDC and the general public when it comes to tokenization on something like the XRPL. You are not getting control 
of the assets that are tokenized through CBDCs, you are getting direct control through the XRPL tokenization. And guys, we got 505 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. Our special guest has just appeared in the background. So before we bring him up, we're going to show you guys the smartest way to track your crypto. Have you gotten wrecked in the crypto market space or watched your crypto portfolio go all the way up and then all the way down without taking profits? If so, it's probably because you didn't have an exit plan. The good news is that doesn't need to happen anymore thanks to a new and innovative crypto tracker called Merlin. It's the smartest way to track your crypto. Merlin brings all your coins into one place so you can see all your assets across the different exchanges on one screen. You can see your total portfolio value and more importantly, your daily gains, losses and total since inception. Merlin puts the power back in your hands so you no longer have to guess what your portfolio is doing on a daily or monthly basis. Most importantly, Merlin lets you create an exit plan and sends you notifications when your targets are reached so you no longer have to get wrecked in the marketplace. Go to MerlinCrypto.com. That's MerlinCrypto.com and sign up for our free 30-day trial and get on the wait list so you can receive an email when the product is launched. Don't miss out on this new and innovative app, Merlin. It's the smartest way to track your crypto. It is the smartest way to track your crypto, guys. And we brought one of the smartest individuals in this space is joining our show right now. Quincy Jones, I want to say thank you for making time for us, my friend. How are you feeling this morning? And thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, how's my mic? It's perfect. Awesome. No, I'm doing pretty good. Actually, like super busy, but pretty great, actually. How so are you guys doing? We're doing fantastic. And I've got a great video prepared for today because we are going to focus on decentralized applications in the market. But I want to talk about Twitter's role in mass adoption and what Elon Musk is actually trying to do with his implementation of payments on Twitter. But guys, we've got 500 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. We're going to play this this quick clip and go right back to Quincy. Here we go. This Twitter acquisition isn't about politics. All this misdirection about getting people fighting with each other and, and um, you know, talking politics and talking smack and, and you know, all the censorship, right? He got, he misdirected everybody's attention because guess what he's really doing? He's using Twitter as a payments pro platform. And uh, he, and that's what he's been after his whole career. Okay. Um, keep in mind, he's, he's one of the co-founders of PayPal, PayPal, one of the original X dot, uh, original X.com. Um, and he's been trying to, to create better payments. And yesterday, this got so caught up in the drama. I look at that as misdirection as well. Just as Elon is trying to misdirect people to fight with each other over politics while he's really building a payment system, the same thing's true in the crypto world. Everybody's looking at the drama and rubbernecking at the, at the, at the crypto crash. And those of us who are actually really working on building better payment interactions and payment experiences and better, faster, cheaper, more secure payment systems, that, that's the signal through the noise. And to, uh, Quincy, we just referenced an article here, and I want to give a shout out to one of our friends, Crypto Areas out there. Amazing work, amazing XRP community member, and also she's going to be our special guest next Wednesday. So thank you for being here, Crypto Eddie. But Quincy, I'd love to kick it back to you. We just referenced an article by Citibank stating that by 2030, we could have $5 trillion in tokenized assets on blockchains, mainly due to central bank digital currency implementation. But one of the things that we've been discussing on our channel is the Federal Reserve has yet to even confirm that they're launching a CBDC. So as somebody who's working with this technology behind the scenes, how close do you think we are to a company like Twitter mass adopting blockchain to enhance payments? What's your thoughts, Quincy? 
Um, I mean, you could mass adopt blockchain to enhance payments, but I think one of the biggest things that like Twitter may take into account is mass adopt mass adopting blockchain to enhance their application as a whole. Um, yeah, payments are great, but they can essentially utilize the blockchain for a ton of other use cases too, primarily being able to build applications that can be seamlessly integrated with others. So let's say for instance, you had Twitter adopt blockchain A, for instance, and then you had Facebook adopt blockchain A. Well, now Twitter and Facebook can have a seamless means of being able to exchange data between the two platforms without actually having to sit there and like, you know, collaborate on how to do that. And you can actually end up seeing a Facebook post on Twitter and a Twitter post on Facebook and a Twitter, you could like something on Twitter from Facebook and like something um, from Facebook on Twitter. And I think you'll end up seeing a lot more. Now, don't get me wrong. You may see payment means integrated into that as well. But I think in terms of like the benefits, like the how beneficial it could be for Twitter or these other applications and being able to be seamlessly integrated with other apps would be a lot more uh, advantageous for everyone involved in terms of being able to do that. And I think that's something you'll see before you see payments per, per se, not that payments won't come, but I think you may see a lot of different, let's say, uh, interesting technologies uh, develop simply based on the notion of being able to build more efficient applications. And when we talk about interesting technologies, we interviewed you just a couple of weeks ago. And one of the biggest comments we got after the interview, Quincy, was what are some of the decentralized applications that you believe could be successful in the future? Here's a classic example of some of the new unique opportunities that are going to be presented due to this emerging technology. A move to earn platform offers a $24,000 prize for just walking every day. And we don't need, we don't need to dive into the details of this article, but I just wanted to highlight the fact that these are the new types of opportunities that are emerging from decentralized applications and from these unique investing protocols. I actually saw an article, I believe it was a year ago, where you could add something on top of your door. And every time you walked through that doorway, it would pay you a penny. I think it was on the Cosmos blockchain. There's all types of interesting gaps being developed today. What are some of the most interesting opportunities that you recognize, Quincy, in the decentralized application market? Yeah, so I don't know if I can speak too much on that pay to move or even like sort of like pay to game type of uh applications I'm not too familiar with those and i'm not usually the biggest fan mostly because i come down to where's the value being made and how are people able to sustain it uh i've had a few friends get caught into a few uh a few different issues with a few different projects because of those things and the lack of sustainability but i think what you're end up seeing is what i call pay per execution for applications uh so right now when you go on an application it may have advertisements it may have subscribers it may have even sales as a means of being able to monetize itself where blockchain, or applications on the blockchain may actually have a means of being able to be monetizable simply based off the users being able to pay for the engagement. Now, right now, when you engage with any application on the blockchain, you pay a network fee. And at least for XTC, that network fee is like one ten thousandth of a penny, uh, similar to something like XRP. But you may end up seeing an application fee on top of that that may end up being a hundredth of a penny or a tenth of a penny. And as you engage with these applications, instead of having the alternative of advertisements or instead of having the means of uh, subscriptions and advertisements obviously suck because they're ads and subscriptions, really, you only get the value out of it if you perpetually use the application on a daily basis as much as possible. But being able to have applications that are based off paper execution can allow for uh, developers and startups to be able to justify not just the valuation, but just justify their product a lot better than just advertisements and having the saturation there or subscriptions and having some means of being able to get more subscribers as well as sort of the barrier for the subscription. You know, not a lot of people may want to pay a $5, $10 subscription, but a lot of people may essentially be more willing to pay for a tenth of a cent, a hundredth of a cent paper execution for the lack of ads and to pay for what they use. And I think you may end up seeing a new means of monetizing applications in this way. I actually think you may see applications that may blow up just because of something like this, because unlike 
like advertisements, they need a certain saturation for ads to be able to justify a valuation for their uh, company and be able to justify some means of profitability. And for subscriptions, you also need that element of saturation just to be able to uh, cover the cost of your infrastructure. And being able to host your infrastructure on the blockchain with paper execution can allow for an easy means of monetizing applications that would otherwise not be able to be monetized in that way. And I think you're going to see that more. And I can get even more into uh, where that execution fee could end up going because you can end up seeing uh, automated dividend yielding shares of those applications that every time someone pays a tenth of a cent, that tenth of a cent may get split amongst a set of shareholders as dividends. And boom, you have autonomous means of being able to profit off an application and, autom and autonomous means of being able to uh, issue the dividends of that share, unlike a traditional company that has, uh, you know, different quarterly reports, and then they have different lawyers and accountants and exchanges that they deal with to be able to issue those dividends, whatever it may be. But I think that's what you're going to see more of in terms of, and all this is sort of already existing in some capacity. It's more of just bundling all these together to be able to allow to create more efficient and more effective products. Quincy, is it okay if we dive into a little controversial topic? Because one of the things that's been circulating throughout the news today is who is found, who is the founder of Bitcoin? And this is somebody who's been addressed in the Bitcoin community for quite a while here. This is Peter Thiel talking about how not knowing who Satoshi is, is very important to the infrastructure of Bitcoin. So I think the reason we do not know who Satoshi is, is integral to the history of Bitcoin. If we knew who it was, you know, our um, too powerful central government would probably do some very unpleasant things to that person. We played the video before about how the uh, Homeland Security actually met with the founders of Bitcoin, the four Satoshi developers they found in California. And, and somebody commented about what you had to say about Bitcoin. Now, me and you had discussed before the show, we're not going down this rabbit hole. Do not worry about it, Quincy. But for anybody who's new investor to Bitcoin, what are some of the biggest concerns that you have for this project? I wanted to show another controversial video, but there are some swear words in this. It's from Dan Pena. And what he says is that if everyone knew who founded this project like he does, they would understand that this is going to zero. So with all the news that was circulating on Twitter, Quincy, I'd love for you to address it on our channel. What are some of the biggest concerns that you have with Bitcoin? And then we'll continue on to some more relevant topics. Yeah, uh, kind of going off of what uh, Peter Thiel said, I'm actually like a huge like Peter Thiel admirer. I watch a ton of his different lectures and a ton of his different speaking events, and I love what he has to say. And I actually sort of disagree with him a little bit on the notion of not knowing who Bitcoin is. I think it essentially creates a bit of a risk that we're not really sure of. And the reason I say that is just imagine, like, let's just name five five entities that you wouldn't want to be the creator of Bitcoin. Let's say it's the U.S. government, the Chinese government, some, you know, some some hackers or something that essentially built a piece of technology that was predicated on them getting rich, maybe scammers. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the case. It's just like, well, not knowing who it is sort of opens up the risk of, well, who is it? Now, I understand what he's saying and being able to create a fully neutral currency, uh, it's better for there to be no one that's really responsible for it, or at least no one held responsible for it, presuming it actually works really well, uh, than having you know a person who's known for creating the thing that pegs the dollar or something. Um, but at least for me, I look at it more as a systemic risk, not knowing who it is, just primarily because, I mean, look at the crypto space now. The projects where you don't know who they are tend to be the ones that people don't don't tend to walk away from very well. Not saying that's the same for Bitcoin. It's just a very, it's a risk that I don't typically like, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the worst thing in the world. That's kind of where I have to go with that. Johnny Crypto, I'd love to know if you have any follow-up questions or anything. I do have some additional content prepared, but is there anything you wanted to ask Quincy, maybe in regards to Bitcoin or any other topics? Well, no, there's, there's discussions of, you know, in terms of Bitcoin and its survivability in the long run. And I'm curious what Quincy thinks in the long term. Do you see the, 
Bitcoin being able to coexist with a CBDC uh, type system that we know is coming around the world, right? The CBDCs are inevitable. Um, and we know the ups and downs of them. We talk about them all the time on this show. The question is, do you believe there will be alternative around the CBD system? And can Bitcoin be that system? I think actually any of these cryptocurrencies can coexist with uh, CBDC systems. I think people have this notion of cryptocurrency, like we're going to be going to the grocery store and buying our milk with these different tokens. And I see it a bit differently, especially with different smart contract platforms. So kind of what I said before, where you can have uh, a means of being able to host applications that are seamlessly integrated with each other, have a means of being able to pay these applications so these developers and uh, these startups can have a better means of monetizing. I think the means of being able to make payments on the network are going to be made for being able to create uh to be able to exchange value between different processes uh as opposed to the same way you would use the dollar to go get your hair cut or buy milk or you know fill up your gas tank or whatever uh now when it comes to bitcoin i think the biggest thing for bitcoin and it's funny too because this goes the this is the sort of the same idea for a lot of these other cryptocurrencies whether it's xrp xdc cardano doesn't really matter but that neutral means of being able to exchange value between different uh countries is great you know, if I'm in the United States and somebody else is in uh, Sweden somewhere, it'd be quite difficult for us to be able to operate on two different payment uh, terminals and then allow us to exchange that value across uh, borders where Bitcoin can do that very well. XTC mm -hmm. can do that very well. XRP can do that very well. But it's a means of exchanging uh, capital as opposed to, like I said, going to the store and buying your milk with it. Now, this doesn't mean that this doesn't hold any value in its in its own right. It just means it's just a means of being able to exchange uh, value between uh, two different continents, two different countries, two different entities uh, in a way in which they don't have to go through multiple payment terminals to do so. So I think at a fundamental level, that's really what blockchain is able to do. And then we can stack on on top of that uh, all the other different use cases and tools that you're able to utilize with that. Fascinating, Quincy. And we got 546 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. Quincy, there's a bunch of questions I wanted you to address. But one of the things that we've discussed is the play to earn and the play to move movement. Well, how about blockchain gaming in particular? As Citigroup also agrees that blockchain gaming could be one of the biggest catalysts for growth that we see over the next decade. And specifically, you brought this up on our channel the other day. Once there are games and applications that allow you to monetize your growth within their ecosystem, Let's just use Fortnite as an example. Imagine if Fortnite, as you were better at the game and as you accumulated assets within the game, you could flip and turn those into real profit. There'd be no reason for any other gamer to use something that doesn't pay you a profit. And that's something I wanted to ask you about. How long do you believe until we see the revolution of blockchain gaming take over the traditional gaming space because of all the opportunities it offers? I actually believe blockchain gaming and traditional gaming will be sort of like a symbiotic of each other now one thing that i think is a little bit of a misconception is i don't think most people are going to be able to profit in blockchain gaming or gaming in general a perfect example of this is you can go into different games and profit in them right now like i think a perfect example that i see a lot is is uh, if you go to the uh, steam store and you know you may play team fortress 2 or csgo or whatever and over the course of like a year or two you may uh, gather a bunch of items but at the end of the you know year or two, you've only gathered maybe two, maybe five dollars worth of items. Now I remember when I used to game really hardcore back in high school, I knew people who would go try to find rare items and try to flip them around and maybe they make a hundred bucks here, a hundred bucks there, or playing like World of Warcraft and finding like items, or even going out. I've even known people that have uh that would go out and play like Overwatch and they'll level up a character and then sell that account to people. That is something that's already gonna exist. I think that's just gonna be a lot more 
I can say liquid uh, in terms of blockchain because now you have a means of being able to sell these assets into a marketplace that's a little bit more equitable than just selling it on the Steam store or being able to sell an account through the means of being able to have that account tokenized and just selling the token that gives you access to that account the, the same way that somebody could create an account with an email address, level that character up, and then sell that character to someone who just didn't want to go through the process. And there's a bunch of different ways to go around doing this. It's just a small minority of people are able to uh, capitalize off this. Now, for the average user, I think the perfect example of this in terms of being able to exchange value, not quite for a profit, but you could if you wanted to, is being able to have a equitable means or having a liquid means of being able to move from digital assets that you are digital items that you don't want into digital items that you do want. The example that I like to use a lot is, uh, what is it? Not Clash of Clans, Clash Royale. So you have, you have like a deck of like eight cards. And I think there's a total of maybe like 50 cards or something. And as you play the game, you'll accumulate more cards. This is a perfect example of maybe each card is worth a tenth of a penny or whatever. And you accumulated all these cards. And maybe when you sold them all, maybe like 10 bucks. But one thing that you will be able, or one thing that you could be able to do is, hey, I don't want this card. Maybe I can go onto a marketplace and be able to trade this card for a card I'm actually going to use. Or maybe I can just sell this card and then use the capital from that to buy a card that I'm actually going to use. Now, this doesn't mean this card's worth a ton of money, but it gives people the ability to be able to move in and out of different objects that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. I know right now for Clash Royale, once you have a card you're not going to use, you just kind of have it. There's no means of getting rid of it. It's just there in your account and you'll never use it. Um, but having a means of being able to go to a marketplace to be able to trade those cards for cards you're actually going to use or being able to sell those cards to use the capital to buy other cards that you're actually going to use in whatever game. This could be Clash Royale, WoW, uh, CSGO, even COD games. Um, just having an a, a easy means of being able to move out of items that you don't want into items that you do want is, I think, the biggest uh, the biggest advantage of blockchain technology, as well as being able to have a liquid marketplace of being able to exchange those goods and sell those goods. Um, but for the average user, like I said, with the Steam store, you could play a game or a couple of games for a whole year and accumulate items. And then at the end of the year, you're like, OK, yeah, cool. I've got like two dollars worth of games in my or two dollars worth of items from these games in my account that you could sell on the Steam store, or could sell on like the Xbox store or whatever. Um, and I think it'll be similar to that, except I think you'll be a lot more liquid. So you have an easier means of being able to exchange items within games, primarily through different marketplaces and primarily through different trading means and potentially cross-platform trading too. You may have a person, and I know we've seen a lot of cross-platform games come up uh, in the past like few years, but someone on PC being able to accumulate an item and then sell that item or trade that item with somebody on a console uh, and being able to do that in a pretty simple manner. Uh, and that item is the same item in both games. It could be GTA or it could be COD or whatever. It's just a unit of account that's being referenced in your account in that game. And now you have a more liquid means of being able to exchange that. Yeah, and I think just building on that, I think Quincy's right. It'll start out as a marketplace. You know, one of the biggest fallacies in gaming ads was the whole thing of play to earn. You, you heard a lot of that in the early bull run of 2020 run. A lot of, a lot of play to earn stuff, but what you realize uh, pretty quickly, it was, it was all pretty much Ponzi scheme stuff, right? People were buying something, you get into it. But the problem was, and I remember everybody saying, Johnny, you're like, no, stay away. Because the reality is, unless there is something generating income on the front end, you're just getting into something that is not sustainable. However, yeah. what I think is going to change. Oh, sorry. Quincy. What I was going to say, and I'll take it over to you, is what I think the difference here is, if you look at something like Gala Games and what they're building, I think what you will see is at some point in time, I do believe there will be some element or form, not only in addition to what you said about building your character, building your items and selling it, there needs to be a marketplace for that. People are already doing that on eBay. 
that's just going to transition to the blockchain. It'll be much, much easier to facilitate. But I do believe there'll be a form of play to earn apps where you'll see pay to play, where people have to pay. Now, if you make it pay to play, then it's somewhat more sustainable because if you're putting money in, then then at least there's a uh, there's sustainability for someone to come out. However, what that means is most people are going to lose, you know, <laughs> and yeah. you're going to have top five or 10 percent of people that are going to be earners and everybody else is going to be piling in. That was going to be my number one takeaway, Johnny, is the way that these gaming infrastructures are set up. And somebody commented, this is an NFT tones discussion. I completely agree. We would ask NFT tones about this. But the way that these infrastructures are set up, Quincy, is that 10% of people are going to make profit. 90% of these people are going to lose money. So I don't want people to think, oh, blockchain gaming means everyone's going to get paid to play video games. There's going to be a small portion of this market that makes the majority of profit and the majority of people, they're going to be left behind with no profit. So just some closing statements there. Do you agree? I wouldn't necessarily put it that way. Uh, 90% of people are just going to be playing the game. <laughs> That's sort of the profit in the game. Now that 10% of people or 5% or 1%, um, one thing I was going to ask of you, have you guys ever played the game or heard of the game EVE Online? No, I have not. So EVE Online is a regular it's a video game. It's a space game. It has an in-game uh, economy that uh, if you were to measure the in-game economy and GDP, it'd be around a billion dollars. And this is just around people being able, and this comes into like in-game economies where you have a ship, some people will go off, fly off to some planet, go mine some resources, come over to a marketplace, sell these resources in a marketplace. They have, they have like these, their own little credit system and stuff. But people will literally just go out and literally go uh, acquire resources and then sell them to players that don't want to necessarily go through the process of acquiring those resources. And maybe okay. in-game as players accumulate in-game currency, they go, oh, someone's selling, you know, all this fuel or whatever, and I'm able to buy it from them. And you can see these in-game economies. Now, the average player will just basically just be playing the game and be able to be offered different items, resources, uh, and just different aspects of the game from other players. And these actually simulate sort of in the same way of like real economies uh, do. You know, you, you wouldn't necessarily consider like, oh, only 1% of people make money in grocery stores because they sell the items and everyone loses money because they're buying that. No, you just get the items from the grocery store, just like you would go to a marketplace to acquire a set of cards or a set of fuel or a ship. Someone's, you know, comes and creates some amazing ship and they go to a marketplace and sell it. So the average user is just going to be playing a game and they may be uh, spending some form of value, whether it's real real currency or in-game currency or different resources within games and the people arbitraging those resources. The only difference between EVE Online and a blockchain game is you essentially need someone in the real world to give you dollars for those EVE credits and then boom, you've basically profited in dollars. Now people create these whole little, people actually create companies where they will literally hire people to get little ships to go out into different planets and go out and mine different resources so they can bring them all in and then sell them and sort of just arbitrage the difference in terms of uh in terms of the effort but for the average user they'll just be playing the game uh and that may cost whatever it is let's say it costs on average two dollars a month to play the game in terms mm -hmm. of in-game in-game currency and it's sort of the uh, the equivalent of a subscription sort of like how like wow or something may be uh, or maybe they play pay you know five dollars to get the game and then they have five dollars worth of this in-game currency and then they can exchange it with other players and they have a means of being able to acquire resources the average 
players just going to be playing the game, but there will be people who will be running basically companies in these in-game economies and being able to arbitrage the difference in terms of resources and being able to accumulate and sell these different things. Like usually the best, best example I like to give in a very simple terms is let's say you had like a, a magic game and let's say uh, someone realizes, oh, if I go to this area and I start chopping down these trees over the course of an hour, I can accumulate this much mana. And if I accumulate this much mana and I go into a marketplace and just sell it to people who don't want to chop down these trees, I might be able to make $4 an hour. Well, if I get a bunch of my friends together and we all go down here to do it and we all scale ourselves up, we potentially might be able to make some money simply based off doing something that other people wouldn't want to do and then basically arbitraging and selling the difference in the items. And I think that's the biggest thing that's going to happen. It'll be really more akin of what I'd like to say is these in-game economies that will parallel real life economies. Like imagine somebody saying, oh yeah, I have an in-game corporation that's essentially in this space game where we go out and we make mind fuel of different planets. And then we come to these different ports and sell it to users. And that's the thing. Now these users don't have to go get the fuel themselves. There's essentially a market for it. And now people can essentially start engaging in really the, the ease of access of being able to acquire resources without actually having to go out there and do it themselves. Whether it's buying ships, whether it's buying you know mana or, or items or swords, doesn't really matter. And this could all be varying too. Maybe the average user only spends about a dollar a month, while more users want to get quicker, they spend $10 to be able to engage in these markets. But I think what it's going to look like is most users are playing the game, and then some people are really providing some sort of uh, some sort of a. Uh, resource to users to be able to have a better experience in the game and being able to yeah. arbitrage the difference that allows them to be profitable but this is more akin to a company than it like i said like an in-game company it's no different than me going and digging up oil somewhere and then selling to selling it to somebody who clearly doesn't want to go dig up oil uh and, and i think you're gonna see a lot of this too and and what i see is uh, have you ever heard of the game star citizen even though like everyone that just heard that name right now is cringing right like anyone who even knows what it is cringing right now but you can essentially have like these in-game worlds that have their own in-game economies that have a means of where users can play the game. And then you could have almost like these in-game citizens that make the game a bit easier to play simply by being able to acquire resources and populate these marketplaces. Quincy, like, if I could, hey, if you're I'd love to get back into okay. the development actually in the payment sector, because I want to talk about what XTC and XRP are currently doing today and the way that banks are right now, not in the future, not in the past, right now, making the shift into digital payments and utilizing these ecosystems that you're super familiar with. And this is a video that I'd love to start with before we kick it right back to Quincy here. MFS Africa has recently began leveraging XRP for on-demand liquidity payments. And this is one of their leading officials within the company stating cross-border payments is indeed a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. Here we go. So I, I work in MFS. Yeah, so MFS Africa is, I, I work in MFS Africa, I'm leading crypto uh, there. And we, our DNA of the business has been for so long moving money across the continent, in and out of the continent. Um, and we just are really damn good at doing that. I truly believe that cross-border payments is indeed a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. Um, you know, we're sitting in Nala's office. Nala has a pretty core feature in their app that is a comparison feature because everyone's kind of just like racing to the bottom in, in terms of pricing. Well, one of the things that we've realized is obviously this is a Ripple and an XRP partner here, but Ripple continues to come up in these conversations, Quincy. And as somebody who's working with XDC, maybe you can elaborate on why the same handful of blockchains always come up in these particular conversations. Let's start off with this question right here. What particular currencies do you see being utilized in this upgrade of the banking system from a developer's perspective? What are the three to five most important cryptocurrencies that you see emerging over the next five years? 
Um, I don't know if I want to go explicitly into what I think what best cryptocurrencies we use. I think it goes into how they're being used as opposed to what specifically is being used. I think you're seeing uh, obviously like XRP being used for like a, a what's it called cross border payments and XCC being used for trade finance and maybe you see Ethereum being used for like retail uh, retail goods in a, in a way or retail investment goods. But I think the main thing that you're going to want to focus on is what type of environments being fostered on these different cryptocurrencies. And that's part of the reason why you see them come up so much. You see XTC come up every single time someone talks about trade finance. Well, it's primarily because all the partners on XTC are focusing on that specific type of uh, engagement. And you may see the same thing with XRP with cross-border payments. People are just focusing on that type of engagement. Now, you may have a cryptocurrency that may focus on uh, on-chain gaming, and you may see a bunch of games come to that uh, cryptocurrency or come to that blockchain to engage in that type of they engage in that type of process. But the biggest thing is what are these processes that are being focused on? And it's really a saturation thing. It's a, have you ever heard of the Medcalf effect? Yeah, so it's like that as the network gets bigger and there's more participants uh, engaging in a network, the more valuable the broader network becomes. And that's exactly what this is, is the more partners you have uh, within this web of different uh, parties that are engaging with each other, the more valuable the entire part, the entire uh, network is because now you have more people to engage with, you have more liquidity, you have more means of being able to exchange, and you have more means of being able to have choice in whether it's price or whether it's partner or whatever it may be. And the biggest thing is focusing on that and whatever specific thing or specific uh, environments being fostered. So the biggest thing I see with XDC is since the, big, the biggest thing on XDC is focusing on trade finance, any sort of entity that is focusing on being able to automate already established trade finance instruments, well, of course, they're going to go to XDC. That's, that's, where everybody, that's where everybody is in terms of being able to focus on that. If you want to focus on cross-border remittance, well, you may go to X XRP, not just because XRP is great, which it's pretty great, but the thing is, is, well, that's what everyone's doing on there. If I want to engage with this type of behavior, I need to go to a market that is able to facilitate that behavior. And I think that's really the biggest value of these different blockchains is not just the technical specs, because the technical specs may be able to differentiate them in some capacity, but what type of environment are they facilitating for people to engage in? That's the biggest thing. You know, you can have a network that's in theory the best network in the history of all networks. It does everything. It's amazing. If there's no one on it, like what's the point of doing anything then? And it's entirely predicated on you being able to engage with as many partners or as many people in whatever uh, system of engagement you want to be able to participate in. One of the things I've noticed throughout this week in particular is Cardano has the most developers operating on their blockchain. I believe it's above 3,300 developers. When you talk about usage, and you just referenced this here, you can have all the developers in the world working on a particular blockchain. If there's no user base to utilize the technology, it's all in wasted effort. And Cardano users can now access Ethereum dApps directly from their ADA wallets. Now, I'd love for you to address this right here. We talk about this often on our channel all of those developers that are operating in the Cardano ecosystem, what does that mean to somebody who who's in the space, somebody who's an actual developer? When you hear that 3,300 developers are working on Cardano, what does that mean to you, Quincy? I mean, that's great that there's a that there's so many developers in the space, but kind of like what you were saying, it's not even so much about the developers. It's how many users can you foster in this environment to get this level of engagement and what parties can essentially uh, facilitate that engagement. So I'm not too familiar with all the dApps that are being built on 
uh, Cardano. Uh, it is cool that they're able to access Ethereum dApps. I think that's going to be one of the biggest things that you'll see every network operating in. Uh, people like to reference Flare a lot for this. And I think Flare is a perfect example of being able to bridge networks and being able to engage with uh, apps across networks and being able to move value across networks. Um, but what that allows you to do is it, that allows for people, let's say on Ethereum, to be able to engage in that same level of activity on Cardano or on Flare or whatever uh, without actually having to move those move over to those networks to do so. And the more you see of this cohesive means of being able to communicate cross network, the more the network itself isn't going to quite matter. Uh, you might just choose a let's say random network X. Well, if you want to do trade finance, you may interact with people on XCC. If you want to deal with uh, whatever is going on on Cardano, you can just interact with them without actually having to participate on that network itself. You just have no more access to services without you having to be siloed to a given network. I believe every network that's going to survive has to have this in some capacity, simply based on the notion that you can't presume that everyone's just going to hop on your network for the sake of hopping on your network. But you can presume that if they want to utilize certain services, having access to those services is paramount. And being able to do that through a series of bridges and through a series of technologies that allow you to cross networks in terms of moving value or in terms of accessing data is amazing. So I think it's great that there's a lot that there's so many developers in the space, but it's entirely predicated on or what's the biggest thing that's, that should be focused on is what type of activity are they engaging with and what type of user base are they fostering and what's the means of being able to utilize certain services that's on that network, regardless of the network. Hey, Quincy, I got a question for you. We talk a lot of time about the different networks and I'm, I'm kind of in the same camp as you. I believe there's going to be a coexistence of all these different blockchains uh, out there working, working out there. And at some point, just like TCP came along to bring the whole internet together, there's going to be something that needs to come and bring these blockchains interoperability together. So they're talking to each other um, and you're not just playing with a bunch of different silos. So one of the things we felt here was quant. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it would be potentially one of the technologies similar to like Chainlink that would be, um one of the main blockchains that would lead to bringing the interoperability there so i'm curious of your thoughts what do you think will be is there a particular technology you think that will bring all these blockchains together uh is quant one of those do you think there's something out there that hasn't been invented yet what do you think will be um you know the leading or the front runner there to bring this stuff all together so they're all communicating um, I don't necessarily think there'll be one, just like there'll be so many different blockchains facilitating different services and different environments for those services. I think there may be a ton of different bridges uh, facilitating different means of being able to bridge those different networks. So you may have Impel, Wanchain, Flare, Quant, like it may not just be okay. one, it may just be, and that's the thing, each one of those have their own means of interacting with these different networks. Like Impel right. allows you to operate on the ISO standard, regardless of what network you're interacting with, uh, where Flare is, is allowing you to be able to bring smart contracts to networks that don't have smart contracts as well as being able to bridge those networks where Wanchain is essentially being able to bring wrapped assets across networks and quants really primarily focusing on being able to make api executions across networks um right. they all sort of have their own niche the same way these networks have their they're also their own niches uh, within them and i think variety is the key uh obviously because you don't necessarily want a single point of failure not that not that these networks may uh Hinder, or not that these networks may pose that risk in that regard, but being able to have options and being able to choose different means of moving across networks for whatever your services are. Like I said, if you're a organization that abides by the ISO messaging standard, you may want to use Impel simply based on the notion that, oh, well, we can essentially be able to gar garner this information in this, in this schema 
quite simply rather than using quant. But let's say you want to focus on being able to make ex API executions across networks. You might focus on quant. Or maybe you want to be able to bring uh, smart contracts to XRP and be able to move value from XRP to other networks. You may focus on Flare. Uh, or maybe you just want to focus on wrapped assets. You may go on, uh, like, was it Phantom Token or Chain? Doesn't really matter. Um, there, these these bridges, in a sense, also have their own niches to facilitate a certain type of environment, a certain type of uh, activity in an environment. Um, and it really just comes down to having that variety. Now, it, I do think that each one needs to sort of differentiate itself in some capacity. But for the most part, that variety of choice to be able to utilize these different uh, networks cross chain um, is kind of the thing that's most important. We're going to show an article right now, which is actually in reference to the AI revolution taking place today and how we're going to need decentralized applications and new technologies. Oh, sorry, I was getting an echo there. We're getting we're going to need new applications and technologies in order to distinguish what's a human being and what is artificial intelligence in these new ecosystems. Well, WorldCoin has launched a World ID protocol, an AI resistant protocol that will allow the verification of human identities through an online scan of your iris, which is the center of your eye. The project, which mentioned uh, this launch, enables a non-government universal-based income obtained through AI and means and distributed via digital currencies. This would also argue that the need for more innovative protocols is used to determine the humanness of a particular being. WorldCoin states that it will, its protocol will be private, self-sovereign, and decentralized, allowing users to have control over the utilization of their ID data while also protecting the disruption of these resources. The protocol states that it will offer a service as a public utility, enabling its usage by giving ownership to individuals irrespective of nationality, background, and accelerating the transition of the future that welcomes the benefit of every person on the planet. Quincy, let's talk about AI right now because this is something that people of our age group are going to deal with more and more going forward. AI is becoming indistinguishable from human intelligence, whether it's ChatGPT or many other new protocols that have been released. These new technologies are taking over our economy, and I think they're going to be replacing many of the essential jobs of today. So first of all, do you believe AI is a threat? Let's start right there. What's your opinion on AI in general? Um, I mean, you can sort of look at AI as a threat, but it's no more its no more of a threat than just general automation. Um, when people were afraid of like automation, when it was like machines back in like the early uh, like 20th century or even like coming down with the internet in the early 21st century, uh, I think AI just allows for a certain level of automation that becomes an exp that scales exponentially. And I think what's going to end up happening is, is it's a tool in itself. So you may be able to see a single person be able to do more than maybe two or three people at a time, but I don't necessarily believe it's just going to just completely wipe out like an entire economy. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but the biggest thing is it's, it's a, it's a tool made for automation and it's a tool made to create more productive, more productive people or more productive enterprises uh with the tools that are at with the tools that are on hand uh, i'm someone who likes to use at least chat gpt quite a bit on a daily basis in terms of being able to help debug some of my code and even help uh, create different means of like translating code from different from one uh, language to another um but from my perspective it's like okay cool this is great and this is something i may have been able to do myself it just expedites the process a bit quicker and it would be nice to be able to go to somebody and say oh yeah how am i able to do this and being able to utilize ai may be able to take the job away of the person i would be going to ask but i don't necessarily think it's exactly like that i think it's more of a a tool to be able to create more productive systems and I think the biggest problem is, and it's not just an AI thing, it's an automation thing, is how many people are going to 
get left behind. But I don't mean left behind in the same way of like, oh, no, everyone's job's taken away. It's sort of like left behind of like, let's, let's look at it in this way in terms of automation. If you were a factory worker in like the 1914s or something, and you were just sitting in an assembly line, like putting a screw in and putting in a spring and putting in like very basic components into a car, there may have been a hundred of you. Well, now if you look into a modern like Tesla factory, you may have like one or two guys managing a series of computers that do all those components. But really what happened there was the complexity to be able to do the same job exponentially increased but doesn't mean that like there isn't somebody in the floor now you know there may be some future where there's nobody in there or whatever and maybe somebody's in some like satellite office or whatever it may be but the thing is is the, the job got consolidated and i think that's really what's happening here when it comes to ai is jobs get consolidated where you don't need as big of a team to be able to do the same process and in theory it'd be nice for other people to be able to find other things to do but the biggest thing about being left behind is if you were you know, working in an assembly line and next thing you know, a machine comes in and now you need to have uh, a degree in engineering and maybe some piece of automation comes in there. So not only do you need a degree in engineering, you need, you know, a master's in engineering with so much experience to be able to deal with automation and maybe even know how to write code. Uh, the job skills becomes a bit higher and the tools to be able to do that job may be a bit simpler in some regards, but if you don't necessarily know how to utilize those tools or you don't have those tools, you could essentially be left behind. I think a very simple example of this too, this isn't even an AI thing, actually, is uh, if you look at a cash register, you know, if in the 90s, you know, if you had to be a cash register, you'd sit there and go, ching. now if you walk into a Walmart, it's a person sitting there, and I actually just went to Walmart, like, not too long ago, but it's a person sitting there with, like, five self-checkouts, and they're really there to make sure the machines are running well, they may, like, fix the machine every time it goes down, or they may go and help you out if you're having a problem, and now you have one person man managing six different machines that do the same thing that six different people would have done, but that job just got consolidated. And instead of being a physical job of being able to put in, you know, put in the information to be able to give you your change back and checking you out, it's now more of a, a systems management job where, yeah, the machine's doing that, but now you got to manage the set of machines that are doing that. And I think you see this as a perfect example in, um, in uh, Amazon warehouses too, where warehouse jobs have always been a thing. But now to be able to do a warehouse job, you have to deal with these different automated robots, you have to deal with these different processes, um, you have to deal with so much more than you otherwise would have. And the skills to be able to do that is a lot higher than working in a warehouse in like the 50s. Quincy, well, I totally agree with you that there's no doubt each industrial revolution brought inefficiency that replaced humans or replaced human work. Uh, when you started with the very first industrial revolution was mechanical. And if you think about it, that was like the arms and legs of a human. Then we brought in electrical power, which kind of made it the much more efficient. It was the lifeblood of, of the, of the, uh, of that, of that revolution. But then the next one we went into uh, communication. So now robots can actually talk to each other. But the thing that was always lacking, always lacking in all these robots was the ability for them to think for their own. They basically were programmed and they could, you know, move left, move right, up, down, whatever. Right. The difference here with AI is it actually almost gives these things, especially with with the ability to to learn, is it makes you it makes you wonder. You now have all the pieces. You, so the, the thing I see that's different here is now you've got the arms, you got the legs, you got the lifeblood, and you've got you got the power source, you got the communication, and you have the brain. You literally have you know a single walking robot like the days of Terminator. And I know everybody laughs when you bring that up, but is there any concern you have at all of someday? of robots being so smart of being able to, 
you know, overtake, let's say, civilization? Is there any concern of that whatsoever in your mind? So one thing that I think that tends to come up a bit, and I think it's a tiny bit of a fallacy, is that AI aren't humans, right? So we have a means of being able to juggle a lot of complex concepts at the same time. And I think AI, as of right now, and it can be better in the future, it can be really, 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 really good at being able to get really good at an individual process yeah. and then being able to simultaneously look at these individual processes on their own um, and then being able to execute off of them. But then when you start getting into AI, being able, like, if you start taking an AI and you start trying to get it to reason its position on something or trying to get it to look at the meta of why it did something, AI starts falling apart a little bit. Not because it's not intelligent or anything, but you start getting into this notion of, okay, and I think a perfect example of this, I was speaking about this on a Twitter space. I was watching uh, a Lex Freeman interview of the CEO of OpenAI, and he was talking about this too, and it really piqued my interest uh, because he was talking about how, uh, there was sort of a criticism of chat GPT being sort of biased. And I think it was like Jordan Peterson or something said, oh, can you write me a 500 word essay on, or can you write me like a couple sentence essay on why Joe Biden is a great president? And it gives you, you know, a little essay. Then he does the same thing where he's like, can you write me a little, little essay on why Trump is a great president? And it, you can clearly see that like for the Biden one, it was like a paragraph. But for the Trump one, it was barely a sentence. And then he started asking, well, why did you, why did you give me this biased answer of, this being this longer than this. And the AI sort of like stuck in the sense where it's like, oh shoot, like, is this biased because this has this many words and this has so much fewer words. Uh, and that's like, if you ask the human that, we can start getting into a conversation on what your thought process were to be able to do these things and why you do these things and being able to adjust off of that. Once you start getting into meta of why an AI does things or the meta of why things end up being the way they are, uh, AI starts getting into this weird it gets into this weird area where it's nowhere near as sophisticated as being able to answer a singular question for you. Where if you ask a human, you know, like we do this all the time. I think this is like the whole like joke with lawyers is that if you ask a human enough questions, they might contradict themselves and then spend like the next hour trying to reason why they contradicted themselves. And they can give you some pretty good reasons where the AI may create a reason, contradict itself, then create another reason, contradict itself. And then when you ask it on the contradiction that it just made of the previous contradiction, now maybe it's learning and maybe it gets more sophisticated at this, but there's sort of like this meta knowledge and being able to act that I don't think AI has really gotten to the point of perfecting as opposed to being really like really sharp and like, like really focused on a very particular task, a very particular idea. Let me ask or you this. Um, Quincy, one of the things that I have a concern with AI is, is the fact that there's no feelings, right? There's no, there's no emotions there. So one of the things that could become evident to an AI that's symbiotic or, or supposedly coming up with its own thoughts is it could look at the environment and just view human beings as a negative. So it couldn't be an emotional thing where it says like, oh, I disagree with Quincy. We need to attack that specific human being. But let's say that AI, some symbiotic AI views that human beings are actually a deteriorant to our environment. And we're inevitably not only eating up and destroying the land that we exist on, this is heading towards a dark place. And the AI can predict that. It can see, can run these simulations and see exactly where we're headed. And maybe it comes to a simulation or, or an agreement that human beings should go in order for AI to be sustained. So I'd like to actually get your thoughts there. There's no emotion regarding that, right? It's not It's not anything against the human beings. It could be very black and white and say, human beings bad, AI good, let's get rid of the human beings. Yeah, actually, uh, it's funny that you say that because yeah, sure, that may be a concern. But let me throw you a concern that's way worse and way more likely um, and solely based off of a an AI is not a person. So here's a perfect idea. Let's say I had this AI robot and it was this amazing robot. 
And, um, and I said, Hey, can you go to my grandma's house? And, uh, can you grab something out of my drawer? But let's say it gets to my grandma's house and the place is locked. Well, it's a instructions is to get to my grandma's house and go into the door. So let's say it starts breaking down the door, starts smashing because it's locked. And this thing is just because it hasn't been told, oh, yeah, if you get there and it's locked, wait outside. Or so you may end up getting these uh, unintended consequences with AI where you may give it something very literal and it may do everything in its power to do that thing. And it may like like it's sort of like a Terminator thing where I will rip through anybody to, to accomplish this task because this is my task. And, and, and things can be a lot more nuanced in that regard. You know, you could say, uh, oh, yeah, uh, AI, can you create a way to cure cancer? And then it comes up with the conclusion of let's just give everybody cancer and then try to cure it. And exactly. you know what I mean? like something crazy where it's like, what? Who? And then it may go, oh, we cured cancer, but we just killed 90 percent of the population to do it. And, and it's stuff like that where it's like an unintended consequence that I think is way more of a threat. Then just the idea of it coming up to the conclusion of like wiping us out. But I only say that because any given any given task that you give it to it that may have some complexity <clears throat> could be being wiped out as opposed to it going, hmm, humans suck. You know, coming up with like the Ultron theory. Oh, yeah, you know, I went on the Internet for 20 minutes. Humans got to go like it's, it's, you know, but that's the thing, though. I think that's the biggest thing that you really should be worried about is AI being too literal and being like i said like oh let's cure cancer and it gives everyone cancer to be able to test on everybody and then it finds out because think about it that'd be the best way to get the biggest pool of people to test on is to give everybody cancer but that'd be obviously a terrible thing to happen you don't want everyone to get cancer just to oh yeah we technically found the cure um but no i think it's stuff like that that ends up being a lot more a lot more threatening uh is the literalness of ai um, and there are like a lot of jokes sort of like in the developer community about it. Like I saw like sort of like one meme where it's like, hey, robot, can you build me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? How do I do it? Yeah, you take two pieces of bread and you slap it between a, a bit of peanut butter and jelly. And then it takes like two pieces of bread, two part, uh, two jars of peanut butter and jelly and stacks it on top of it. And it's like, okay, cool. I guess that's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but you have two bread and two jars. And um, it's just the absolute literalness of AI, where this sort of gets into the whole meta notion of like how humans interact. If I told you something and it didn't quite make sense, you won't take it to the most literal extreme and go like, if I said, oh man, I'm going to kill that guy. No one thinks I'm going to kill him. But what if the AI does and goes, whoa, 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 hold on right there. I need to take you in for questioning. Like you just made a threat against another human. It's just like, I didn't literally mean that. But um, it's sort of the new one. Now, I don't think AI is to the point where it'll take something like that too literally. It's when there's some level of nuance to it. And it comes across a, a variable that it may not have thought before. And I actually think a perfect example of this, this actually freaks me out, is when AI is interacting with the internet, uh, let's say, for instance, I think this could be a crazy thing when it comes to like hackers or even just in terms of like cybersecurity on the internet. Uh, when we interact in like the physical space and we see a door and let's say the door is not very like secure and let's say there's like off to the side, the fence is a little low so I can get over the fence if I really wanted to. A human wouldn't do that. They'll go, oh, the door's closed. Yeah, I could sort of break in if I wanted to. But an AI may go, oh, I need to get into the system and then just hack the system to get in because it needed to get in, even though you just told it to like, yeah, can you just like get past this login or something like type in the log and it, it'll find every way around the login because it needs to get in as opposed to just you know, putting in the credentials or something, or, or maybe the credentials were wrong and you made a mistake. And now it's just basically attacking your system to get in because you told it to get in. And it's just weird, literal situations like that. And I think it, it could find like security flaws. And it's like, oh, I'm in boss. And it's like, wait a second, you completely compromised our system just to log into this thing because I gave you the wrong login credentials, you know, like crazy stuff like that. Yeah, I think you it's know, way more of a, it's way more of a threat. I got to chime in here. So question, you know, so as you're talking, it made me start thinking about 
the reality is that I know people are going to say you're crazy, Johnny, Webb, but the reality is, you know what, what you described is no different than humans. If you think about it, a human doesn't know whether it's right or wrong to kill when it's born. A human doesn't know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich when it's born, right? What happens <laughs> is throughout, no, right? Listen, throughout our lives, we are, we are programmed and taught what is right and what is wrong. And a robot is no different, right? The robot is, well, let's face it. A robot's only as good as this because we're the ones creating the code, telling the robot what to do. And to me, it's just a matter of creating that learning, right? And we know that, that you know, it's setting the parameters and the rules of what is real and what is, you know, what is off limits and, you know, a robot shall not kill. It's just a matter of if you program it and teach it, theoretically it can do it. I was at a conference. I'm in the technology space. And I was at, I've been, you know, many conferences we go to, Bluetooth, IoT type conferences. And all you saw, all they talked about was all about machine learning, machine learning. How do you make things smarter, better AI and, and so it can learn on its own. And th there's a whole host of efforts that's going to go on for the next 10, 20 years on how machines can continue to learn on their own. And to me, that's what, that's what I, yeah, exactly. It's right. who defines the good and bad. Well, that's in the eye of the developer, the coder. And that's where it gets scary. If the coder has a good intention, he's going to put all the parameters around the AI system, right, Quincy, so that it can know, oh, this is right. This is good. Okay, when I get to a door, if it's locked, I don't smash it down. All that's programmable, right? That can all be done. You're right about the literacy of it if it's not developed correctly. The question is, will there be school for robots to learn what is right or what is wrong? And that will be done through the coding most likely. But to me, that's what it gets down to is, to what extent do we get, you know, what extent will they learn on their own to to decide what is literal or what isn't literal or will that be programmed? And that's where I think there's going to be a whole host of innovation that has to happen to make sure these things are safe if we end up moving down that route. Absolutely. And I want to play this short clip before we kick it back to Quincy. This was just last week as as leaders across America came together to shut down the development of artificial intelligence. And interestingly enough, for many of our listeners, there was a couple of Ripple developers. Chris Larson was actually on this list, as well as a couple other Ripple developers. So we're going to play this short clip and go to Quincy. Here we go. This morning, a warning from Elon Musk and other tech industry experts about the power of artificial intelligence. Musk and hundreds of influential names, including Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, are calling for a pause in experiments, saying AI poses a dramatic risk to society unless there's proper oversight. I think we need to regulate the AI safety, frankly, because um, it is, I think, actually a bigger risk to society than uh, cars or planes or, or medicine. In their new letter, tech industry leaders pose these existential questions. Should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete, and replace us? I would like to pause it there, Quincy. One of the things that I've that stuck out to me when I'm studying this AI technology is for the first time in the history of human beings, me and you, including Johnny Crypto, all of us are going to live through this. For the first time in the history of Earth, it is going to be dominated by an intelligence outside of biology. So what's interesting is we can debate if these are sentient beings, if they're actually intelligent. That's up for debate. But what we can't debate is that this new technology is something we've never seen before, and we're not going to be able to predict all the impacts. You put a positive spin on it. Johnny puts a negative spin on it. At the end of the day, it's probably going to be something in between. And we've referenced this many times before. There's a concept called BrainNet, where they take, let's use uh, Elon Musk's example. He's building Neuralink, which allows the internet to be incorporated into your brain. He thinks this is one of the ways that we can combat AI by becoming symbiotic 
with the technology. Now, many of the people who have read the Bible out there understand that's that could be the chip, right? That could be the 666. They put the chip in your hand, the carbon print, however you'd like to call it. The day that human beings allow technology to be implemented into our skin, I don't, I don't know if there's ever going back. And we've seen the World Economic Forum elaborate on that too, talking about how the global elites of the future will have a biological advantage over traditional human beings because the global elites are going to merge with technology while the everyday human being is going to be left behind basically eating and pooping like, like we have before. And that's kind of what the World Economic Forum said. I'm, I'm putting it in a politically correct way. What's it mean to you, Quincy? Yeah, actually, I would already say that we're already like infused with technology, probably even worse than it being in our brains, uh, but being in our psyches, like look at the emotional toll that social media has on people like we are literally addicted to our phones in terms of being able to interact with different technologies on a daily basis, whether it's social media, whether it's uh, different games or apps like we spend we, we have people that spend more time on social media or playing games or interacting with other people over the internet than we do on our own daily lives. I think this is sort of a a, a next step above it. But I think this is sort of the critical step that you'd want to look into before, you know, any chips go in your brains. And in terms of, uh, you know, people having a brain chip, having an advantage over people who don't, I think what's sort of going to end up happening is uh, similarly to the smartphone, it'll be easily accessible, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's equitable and how people know how to use it. Like, I'm a software developer, I have a computer, I have a phone, but I bet my means of being able to use a computer are probably, you know, surpass like the average person watching this they i think that's exactly mine. what's gonna happen sure. i think i think that's what's gonna happen in terms of because we always just assume oh my god you know you have a phone like and my dad makes this joke all the time he's a teacher he's like oh my god if i had a phone back in my day i'd be a genius i'd know everything but you know you could look up anything and know anything but we spend all our time on social media and spend all our time on really just a lot of uh fluff and entertainment um, I think the same sort of thing may happen with, you know, whether it's a brain chip or whatever. Um, now, when people say, oh, well, you may have a biological advantage. Well, you may have a biological advantage in the fact that you can afford a computer and a phone when there's like 3 billion people out there that can barely afford food, never mind being able to have a smartphone or a, and that's the thing, we, we live in very technological societies too. So, and I don't mean that like people here, you know, can't eat food or don't have access to a phone, but there are people all over the world that don't have access to the same technologies that we have, barely have access to electricity. And I think it's sort of on par with that then it would be like oh you got to be the top one percent to like you know there was a back in the day where you had to be the top one percent to have this giant brick phone just to call your freaking boss for 30 minutes before the battery died you know like and yeah like and the biggest thing is 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 i think it's more akin to that especially when you see technology technology is very scalable so i think it's more akin to that than it is like oh there's only gonna be this one percent of people that have this technology as well as there may be a whole new set of companies a whole new set of technologies built off of that just to freaking get you distracted into more, you know, media focused, um, media focused entertainment. Um, but I don't think it's as, I think there are dangers of course, but I don't necessarily think it's, it's the way that people think it is. I think it will parallel how we already use technology. Now it will just have a higher bandwidth with being able to engage with it. I think a perfect example of that you're seeing things speed up when the first social media uh, company, you know, Facebook or the first, you know, massive one came up Facebook, uh, not everyone was on social media. Now we have like children on TikTok that spend all their time on TikTok and they'll go through more media in the span of like two hours on TikTok than like every, than any book they will ever read in their entire life. Like it is crazy to think about that. I think it's more akin to that in terms of us being able to engage with the internet faster and faster and faster and more and more people engaging with it. But I don't necessarily think there's going to be like an exclusive class of people unless you consider like 
people with iPhones as opposed to people that can barely even afford a phone, a, a special class of people. Um, but it, it depends on how things are manifested. Like, I think- To be fair, Lindsay, I do. To be fair, I, I, I genuinely do. I do think there's a separate class of people, the ones who have access to technology, the ones who have access to the internet, also known as unlimited knowledge, and the people who are hindered by what they're allowed to be exposed to. And we've talked about this for several months on our channel, the World Economic Forum has painted a very eerie picture of what 2030 could look like, stating not only are you going to own nothing, you're going to be happier than ever. So Quincy, while we have you on the show, this is a 90-second video. We're going to pause and narrate this thing, me and you, my friend. So I'm going to play this short clip. This is what's coming according to the World Economic Forum. I'm just realizing... I played this privately when when you were talking, Quincy, and I didn't realize it was just the, the words on the screen. So what they're highlighting throughout this video is over the next 10 years, we will bring change at a speed and scale and force unlike anything we've seen before. And this is more important than ever because what they're telling us is that we're going through an industrial revolution right now. They compare it to the three that we've experienced before and what's going to happen today. So people in the live chat let me know if you want me to play this video, but I'm going to skip it for the short time being, Quincy. We've talked about the narrative of owning nothing and being happy. Do you believe that's something you're going to experience, or is that just something happening in the background? There's always global elites trying to take away our means of freedom. Actually, I'd argue that's happening right now. When you look at, like, it's so funny when you look at owning nothing, the average person owns nothing and, and just has a bunch of debt, and that's exactly what that is. You own nothing. <laughs> you, you either finance it and you still don't own it because you're financing it. And, uh, or you just don't have the means of being able to afford it in general. Like how many people can afford a house now, as opposed to like 30 years ago, you know what I mean? And that's the thing about how many people are being able to, are financing a home, if that, if not renting or subscribing to a different service, I think we're already in that right now. If you wanted to sort of look at it in sort of like a dystopian way, I think the only difference is, is building economies centered around that exactly. Instead of being able to go and buy some CDs, you'll essentially have a subscription service to have access to your music. Instead of essentially go out and buying your phone, you'll finance it or buying your different, different, whatever it may be. I think that's what we're already seeing right now. I just think that we don't necessarily have economies built in that way. They're just sort of moving in that direction. Now, this actually goes into exactly what we end up seeing sort of in a macro sense of like the, uh, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor because the ones who own stuff tend to be able to make money off that stuff. While the ones who don't tend to be spending money to have access to those things, whether it's subscriptions, whether it's financing, and really all financing is just borrowing the means of being able to use something at an interest rate. And I think you're just going to see so many more of that as opposed to, oh my God, what does it mean that we own nothing? Well, we sort of already own nothing. I just think the the kids that are 10 years old now, by the time they're 30, the notion of buying something will just seem silly because it's like, well, why don't I just rent it? Or why don't I just subscribe? Or why don't I just finance it? Where, you know, my parents would have been like, let's go buy your own house. Let's go buy your own car. Let's go buy your own everything and own the things that, that you're able to engage with. Now, I think the sales pitch on this is flexibility. So instead of owning your own car, you could, you know, like you take an Uber or something, or instead of owning your own car, you could lease it as opposed to dealing with all this. I think that's just sort of a marketing spin around it. But I think we're already in that right now in terms of being able to own nothing and be happy. I think the whole notion of be happy is just a marketing spin on basically allowing there to be a class of people who are able to own and lend 
And whether that's lending is in capital or credit, whether that lending is in services, whether that lending is in whatever. And there'll be people that just essentially take whatever expendable cash to be able to live off of and just utilize those things as opposed to owning anything in particular. And I think what's happening is it's getting harder and harder to own things in general, too. Like I said, like people finance their phones now, like never mind financing a car, financing a house, people finance their phones. And like I said, it's pitched as like a service to make it easier to interact with them to be able to interact with these different services or interact with these different technologies. But I'd argue we're already in that now. The only difference is I think you'll have full blown economies built off that, even to the point to where owning a car in the future may be considered like a capital asset that like businesses own because the average person may go, Oh, it's so cheap to have a robo taxi. Why would I own one? But the person who owns the robo taxi makes all the money off the people who use the robo taxi. You know what I mean? The person who lends the money makes all the money than the person who is being lent the money. And I think you can see this in, in so many different domains already. I think the only difference is, is there's like a marketing campaign to make this like the norm or make this like how everything is. And I think everything's pointed that way, sort of anyway, because like I said, we do this in our everyday life. Like, like, do you, how many, how many, like, how many songs do you own? Like, you can go on iTunes right now and buy whatever music you want, but most people have a subscription service. Quincy, let me ask you about this. Do you have any concerns about the industries of America? Anybody who studied how American politics work, America is not a country, it's a corporation. And we can, we can dive into that, but we don't have seven hours to talk about it. But the American corporation, the way it exists today is the economic fuel funds the way the politicians push these bills through. Now, I'm actually going to skip that headline and go right into this. Will the future be human? That is the number one topic from the World Economic Forum. We're going to show you a live video of the man who's being groomed underneath Charles Schwab to lead the World Economic Forum and the eerie picture that he wants our future to look like. But before we do that, we got 445 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. I want to say thank you to Coin Club's Quincy for always joining us. Hopefully he becomes a regular on the show. But we're going to play this short clip here and go back to Quincy. Here we go. So I want to talk to you today about the future of our species and really the future of life. We are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. I'd love to pause it there for one second. I will play the end of this clip, Quincy, but he brings up something very important. Artificial intelligence, what we are to artificial intelligence is essentially what ants are to us. It's They're so small. They're so irrelevant. We can't even communicate with them. If you step on one by accident, it doesn't affect your day whatsoever. And that's kind of picture he's highlighting here. I'm going to play the end of this and go back to you. Coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. This will be the main products of the economy, of the 21st century economy. Not textiles and vehicles and weapons, but bodies and brains and minds. Now, how exactly will the future masters of the planet look like? This will be decided by the people who own the data. I'm going to just pause it there. The future masters of our planet, Quincy. The terminology is so important when watching these videos. That's the last pause I'm going to make. I'll play the end of this, then go right back to Quincy. Those who control the data control the future, not just of humanity, but the future of life itself. Because today, data is the most important asset in the world. In ancient times, land was the most important asset. 
And if too much land became concentrated in too few hands, humanity split into aristocrats and commoners. Then in the modern age, in the last two centuries, machinery replaced land as the most important asset. And if too many of the machines became concentrated in too few hands, humanity split into classes, into capitalists and proletariats. And I can just pause it there because you know what he's about to say. If somebody gets total control over data, it's the same issue that they had with land. It's the same issue that they have with technology. Data is more important than, mon than money because you're able to actually use that data to create infinite wealth. Quincy, you're much smarter than me when it comes to this particular subject. I'd love to hear what it means to you. How do you feel about this fourth AI revolution and the fact that the World Economic Forum is pushing a post-human agenda? Yeah, uh, I definitely have to agree that data is probably the most um, probably the most sought after and probably the most valuable commodity there is. And there's a few reasons for that. A lot of people, when they kind of look at data, they sort of go, oh, are they selling my data? The most valuable part of data is being able to make decisions that other people don't have privy or access to. You can see this in finance. If I had enough information about something, I might be able to predict you know, the next three weeks, the next six months, whatever about something may happening. If I had so much data, whether I'm like Google or something, I may be able to predict what type of product you may like. I may be able to predict what type of like what type of thing you may be interested into and then be able to market you towards that thing. And I think data is essentially going to be the, and it already is, um, it, data is essentially going to be the means in which anybody can do anything solely based off having information to be able to do those things. And I think you see this already now, like it sounds so silly because we look at this all in terms in, in terms of marketing, but you already see this now where if you have enough information on somebody, you can just start pitching them things that they didn't even know they wanted. And then now being able to have a more efficient means of being able to sell them something that they didn't even knew existed five seconds ago. And this can go even further into that too, because now you can start building things, start courting people, even to the point to like data to where you can even start controlling how people like look about, look at things and believe things. Like if you look at social media, you know, if Twitter all of a sudden just wanted to push, you know, hardcore left, uh, hardcore left-leaning things or hardcore right-leaning things, you will now start getting a, a huge population of people who now start being able to believe more of those things not necessarily because they automatically believe it but it's more of a uh what's it called there's an element of the more that we're exposed to sort of formulates how we go about things and if you want to be able to control what people are able to be exposed to you can control what people feel about those different things and i think that's one of the biggest things that you see whether it's finance whether it's politics whether it's advertising whether it's product placement and product uh, creation um, and you can probably get into some like crazy abstract notions of this too, but being able to have the information to be able to capitalize on a certain concept or certain abstract will allow you to be able to do things that other people couldn't. Uh, like I said, in the simplest terms, if you had all this information in finance on a specific company or a specific economy, you may be able to just guess the stock market. You know exactly how things are going because you have all the information for it. If you're able to have all this information on so many users, you may be able to see what users may be interested in what, what users are willing to spend money on what, what users are willing to do this for what, what products are worth even building before you even build them. Like there's so many different things that you can sort of go into solely predicated on the data itself. And the more rich of the data you have, and this sort of goes into AI, the better you can make your decisions off of that. Now, I think the biggest thing is when you start looking at different companies, like whether it's Google or Microsoft or Apple, uh, when you enter your data into, into their database, they own that data. And their means of being able to own that data gives them uh, access to being able to make predictions that they otherwise wouldn't have, had, have access to. Access that you don't have to because you only have uh, this tiny, narrow view of, of understanding based off of based off your perspective. 
But this, like I said, this goes into AI. Once you start getting these huge, huge, huge pools of data predicated off of so many different people, off of so many different things, off of so many different insights, you can essentially start, sounds silly to say this, but really start predicting the future. But not because you're just an oracle that sees all the future. You just have so much information that you can make better decisions than other people, whether it's your competition, whether they consider it the proletariat class, whatever it is, um, you just have a means of being able to make better decisions. And actually those decisions can essentially sculpt reality itself. Like I said, if you if you had so much information or you have the means of being able to control what information people saw, like let's say social media, you may be able to you know push, push certain candidates simply based off of being able to provide certain information in this way and not information in the other way, or being able to uh, hide information and you know keep it sort of privy and then sort of fluffing up information that you want people to see. It doesn't Absolutely. really matter who's doing it, whether it's a company, whether it's a corporation, whether it's an individual either. It, it just means on you have a means of being able to make better decisions and you have a means of being able to sculpt how people are able to see different things. Especially I absolutely agree with this comment here, Quincy. Greenwood Hollywood Company, this is somebody who always comments on our channel, so shout out to this man. He said, I heard speculation that one of the main reasons Elon bought Twitter was for the data, and that wouldn't surprise me at all. And Quincy, I know you're short on time, so I do have a last video prepared for our listeners. Would you? Can you just do everyone a favor? Remind them where they can find more of your content. I know you have a YouTube channel, very popular Twitter account. Where can all of our listeners find you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm Coin Club Quincy on YouTube and on Twitter. Uh, those are my two major places that I like to go. I like to do events too. So you've probably seen me around at like different speaking events. I'll be going to, uh, actually I'll be going to Consensus uh, in Austin, Texas later on this month. But I'll be going to the, yeah, yeah. I'll also be going to the uh, XRP event and you'll be seeing me speak there as well as the XTC event in, um, in August. Uh, but you'll see me around speaking at different events. You can primarily find me online at Coin Club Quincy on Twitter and Coin Club Quincy on YouTube. Um, and yeah, that's basically the, the general, the general means of being able to access my content. Awesome. And the last thing, I, I mean, I'm not going to play this video while you're here, but as we can tell from Twitter today, they've added the Dogecoin, um, the, the Dogecoin fan base is very excited this morning as it's hard to see for our listeners up here. I'm trying to zoom in to show you, they added the Dogecoin emoji, or at least the emblem to the top left-hand corner of Twitter. And there's been several other promotion campaigns when it comes to this project on Twitter. So for the last topic of today, or at least the last one we're going to talk about with you, Quincy, how do you feel about Dogecoin and Elon Musk's outright promotion of this currency? How does that affect not your investment decision, but just what you're witnessing in this space today? We know the SEC was more than willing to go after Ripple. They've gone after several other blockchains in the space, but Quincy, uh, sorry, but Elon seems to be very comfortable promoting Dogecoin. So I find that to be interesting. How do you feel about that? And, and just close out the show for today. Yeah, actually, it's funny because I look at Elon as like this marketing genius. I don't think this has anything to do with Dogecoin. This has everything to do with people talking about what he did. And now that we're talking about what he did, there's more eyes on Twitter. There's more eyes on Elon. Elon does this all the time. I don't even think it's about the thing. I think it's about people talking about the thing so they can be talking about him so he doesn't spend money advertising the things that he's doing. He does this for Tesla. Tesla never paid a single dollar for advertisement, but he's able to get people to talk about it. Same thing with Twitter. I don't think he's going to be focusing on advertising Twitter. People are going to be focusing on what he's doing around Twitter, whether it's Doge whether it's whatever it could be literally anything it's essentially getting people talking about the thing so if you see the little doge emoji thing i don't think that thing is really anything for doge in itself it's to get people talking about twitter get people talking about him and get people all it's like in this thing this is actually a crazy thing about this too if done right in these meme campaigns that he does he's able to get millions of dollars of advertisement just in terms of people having eyes on him simply based off that the, the ai the ai uh created How awesome uh, are these these are pretty cool I I would make yeah. one for johnny crypto johnny crypto if we can get you in this jacket that would be pretty awesome 
Yeah, yeah. But I think I think Elon is an absolute marketing genius in terms of being able to get people to talk about what he's doing without him actually having to do anything at all. Like I said, I don't think this is about Doge. I don't think it has anything to do with the investment or the coin or the network. I think this is entirely predicated on getting people talking about Twitter because look what Elon did. Oh my God, look what Elon did. And then boom. Yeah, now we're all talking about him. Now he's uh, he's all over the you know the public uh, you know all over the internet. Uh, people are making news articles about it. And don't get me wrong, part of it is because he's already big, so he's able to sort of create this uh, snowball effect very easily, as opposed to just like a random person like me trying to you know create some crazy thing to get people. And don't get me wrong, when you see YouTubers do it, it may come off a little desperate. So Elon does it in a very, very, very subtle way to where it's not just about, oh, look at this stupid thing Elon did. It's, oh my God, isn't it Dogecoin? Look on Twitter, it's Dogecoin. Look at all these funny things that Elon's doing. It's, oh my God, it's so crazy. And then you get the Dogecoin community blowing up, get the Twitter people blowing up, get crypto people talking about it, get people outside of crypto talking about the people that are talking about it. <laughs> you get all these people yeah. getting this excitement around something very so, something so passive in a sense. Like, did he really do anything that big? Not really, but now we're all talking about it, aren't we? It's brilliant. And I guess that's why they don't call you the smartest man in the world. They call you Elon Musk. That's a Chael Sonnen quote for anybody who's a UFC fan out there. But guys, we got 424 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And one of our listeners commented, Johnny, can you give me the Ray Dalio video? That would be Changing World Orders by Ray Dalio. If you type that in on YouTube, that's the video that Johnny's actually. By the way, Abs, I just posted it in the under the 3T Warrior Academy link. So Perfect. it's there, guys. You can, it's right in there in the chat, guys. Go watch. Spend it. Watch 40 minutes of your life. It'll, you'll be very happy you did at the end of the day. Absolutely. Whether it's the end of the day or the beginning, you're going to be happy you watched that video. But guys, Quincy, I just want to say thank you. I'm not sure. I'm sure you're running out of time here. We're going to close this video out with a brand new update from Fed now. But Quincy, I'm just going to give you a chance to say goodbye and thank you for making time for us this morning. Yeah, I really appreciate being on here. I love being able to talk about uh, a, a whole host of different ideas that are going on in the space, whether it's crypto, whether it's AI, whether it's broader automation and computing, uh, whether it's, you know, what's Elon doing, because obviously he's very relevant. And it's just really cool to be able to have a space to be able to talk about these in such a nuanced manner and being able to elaborate and dive deep into a lot of these different topics, um, especially uh, in a space that's sort of full of a lot of like generic you know how the space can be. Things can be really generic sometimes. So it's really cool to have like really uh, in-depth conversations on a whole host of different topics here. And I'd be happy to come really whenever. Uh, this is a this is a little. Uh, I happen to be super busy this week, so sorry for things being a little off. But um, but it, yeah. like I love being able to talk on here, and uh, I'd be happy to come back at any time. We do love having you, Quincy, and we're already calling you an honorary member of our 3T family. So that in and of itself, that's an invitation to future shows, my friend. So I look forward to collaborating in the future, and I can't say it enough. Thanks again for your time this morning. Really exciting episode. And guys, we're going to close this episode out with a little highlight on how the Fed now is launching their new payment system. This is something everyone should be aware of. Yesterday, interesting. It's called Fed Now. Here's how it works. Cut one. Today, people and businesses expect to make and receive payments at the click of a button any time of the day, every day of the year. And most expect their financial institutions to offer or support payment services that meet the speed and convenience they seek. In fact, three in four businesses and two-thirds of consumers surveyed think it's important that their bank or credit union offer faster payments. Right. Financial institutions interested in meeting these demands can use the Federal Reserve's upcoming FedNow service to build innovative payment offerings that can help them retain an CEO of Community Bank. Chills going to the Fed and saying, can we have your non-blockchain system 
and, uh, and, and have it so we can give everybody a, a credit card or a bank card, and it, it won't say Fed now on it, but it'll be the engine of Fed now, where they just swipe their card and instantaneously they can buy something. We need something faster, and we want it to go through the Fed every time we make a purchase of something. Complete BS. What no. could possibly go wrong with this? Do you hear what they're trying to say there? And I'm not sure many of our listeners might have missed it. The Federal Reserve's promotion, the commercial that they made, said that people like us are coming to them and stating, we need the Federal Reserve to process our payments. We don't like the way that we swipe our credit cards. Now, obviously, this is Glenn Beck, very famous. We play him on the show all the time. He's exposing the game for our listeners here, stating not only is that complete BS, the idiocy to think that somebody in our economic class would say, hey, Federal Reserve, why don't you control our payments for absolutely free? It makes no sense. And it's the reason that America is a constitutional republic today. The individual is what gets the control. The Fed is not allowed to launch a currency. What the hell is going on here, Johnny? Oh, it's very simple. I'll uncover the game for right now. You can, you can see what's going on. We just talked about it for the past 10 minutes. This is nothing more than what is this is a grab of the most valuable asset in the world. Do I, do I need to say it or have you figured it out? It's about the data. This is think about all the data that the, the, the central bank governments would have when they know exact. Right now, you, see, people don't understand this. The way the banking system works, when you go and spend money, it's done through your, your intermediary bank. So the central bank works with your intermediary bank and your bank, uh, then you know handles all the transactions. Everything goes to your checking account credit card, debit card, whatever you use. And that's all done. And that's with that bank, right? The central bank has no access to that information or data. It's not sold to them and it's separate. And, and Congress actually has rules um, in, in place where that's not supposed to happen. And so when you get to this next round where we remove that intermediary bank, which is kind of what you saw in that example there, right? Or they made it sound like that. That now all that data transfers to the big boys and now they have everything at the fingertips. And it's just a, a, another step towards, you know, the overall long-term agenda. So to me, I think that's what's happening there. Abs is pretty blatantly obvious to me um, that this is a data grab uh, at the end of the day. And, uh, and yes, Glenn is being very sarcastic here. We all know not a great thing, but it's going to happen. Nothing you can do about it. Here we go. We're going to play the end of this clip and close out the episode. Here we go. What could possibly go wrong with the system? Well, they want you to know this is an alternative for a fed coin. Yeah. Mm. yeah, they're not. They're saying, no, I, we want you to know clearly this is not to introduce central bank digital currency, a CBDC. <laughs> no, no. This is an alternative to that. Oh, thank you so much, Jerome Powell. And guys, we almost did a two-hour episode today. Show us some love. Smash that like button. We are an hour and 44 minutes in. And guys, typically, we only go about 59 minutes. So Johnny Crypto, I want to say thank you to each one of our guests. Thank you to Johnny Crypto. Thank you to Coins Club Quincy. We got 395 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And Johnny Crypto, tomorrow we are interviewing Jeremy Hogan on the show and actually... This is super exciting. He revealed his crypto holdings yesterday and showed that he holds 75% of his holdings are actually in XRP. So guys, show us some love. Smash that like button. We're interviewing Jeremy Hogan tomorrow. And like we always say, Warriors, ah, get the shit together, baby. Thank you for joining us. Let's go.